welcome to Themis Podcasts. Themis is a risk management firm specialising in financial crime. Our aim of these podcasts is to bring you interesting news, interviews and recordings of our exclusive events from the world of financial crime. Proliferation Financing 101 Very Chowen from Themis talks with Dr Jonathan Brewer, who is an expert on proliferation financing. Dr Brewer is a visiting professor at King's College London and has held several UN posts related to sanctions and proliferation financing. Listen to this podcast to find out how proliferation financing is connected to money laundering and sanctions and what financial institutions should do about managing it. Welcome to this theme's podcast on proliferation financing. My name is Viri Chauhan. I'm the MD of Themis Community. Today I'm really pleased to have Dr. Jonathan Brewer, a visiting professor at London King's College and an expert on proliferation financing. Jonathan, so pleased to have you on this uh, podcast. It'd be great if you could introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about yourself. Thank you, Viri, for uh, inviting me. Uh, it's a great pleasure. Uh, proliferation finance is something that I think is extremely important and uh, by way of background uh, I'm based in New York at the moment. I work as a consultant at the United Nations. I had a 28-year career in the UK Foreign Service uh, with uh, substantive postings in Angola, in uh, Mexico and in Russia and uh, spent a fair amount of my career working on non-proliferation financing um, developed uh, in the last few years. So that's me by way of background. That's great. Thanks so much, Jonathan. If we could start by providing for our listeners, just in basic terms, what, what do we mean by proliferation financing? It's, it's, it's a good question. Uh, it's not a subject that's uh, particularly widely understood but what we're talking about the start of the basic subject is uh, it's weapons of mass destruction so we're talking about nuclear weapons chemical weapons biological weapons and within the definition is included usually um, uh, delivery systems so typically ballistic missiles uh, also um, we are talking about the so-called related materials so it's the equipment uh, the goods uh, technology that uh, is used uh, to construct weapons of mass destruction and, and it's important to include these related materials because authorities seeking to control proliferation of weapons of mass destruction in other words the trade around the world um, very rarely come across examples of finished weapons systems being traded it's the related materials so what we're talking about when you when you talk about proliferation financing at the sort of the highest levels we're talking about the actual weaponry and sort of what we'd class as uh, weapons of war really and then you mentioned we've also got to take into account sort of the ancillary aspects of what may be constitutes those weapons. Is that what you're saying? In, indeed, it is. So it's not just the weapons themselves. It's it's the equipment, the technology, um, the materials that uh, can be used to construct these weapons. And uh, you know, and over the last uh, decades, it's become a lot easier to construct these weapons because of technological advances uh, in uh, in many many countries. Hence, uh, the focus uh, in many cases on the um, related materials as opposed to the weapons themselves. In terms of operations to try to to stop 
proliferation. Mm. On financing, um, we are talking about provision of funds or financial services, which uh, enable the construction of weapons of mass destruction, or their transport or the transport of the related materials. Um, There is no uh, overall understood definition of proliferation financing. There's no United Nations definition, for example. The Financial Action Task Force, a well-known body which sets global standards uh, on financial crime prevention, produced a working definition in 2010 Uh, which basically uh, identified proliferation financing as the act of providing funds or financial services used uh, for a a large number of activities related to weapons of mass destruction, for example, their manufacture or acquisition, possession, development, export, transshipment, brokering, transport, transfer, uh, stockpiling or use. Um, And actually, that's a good good definition. It covers a very wide range of activities. Uh, And many countries incorporate that definition into their legislation. We wanted to make clear in that FATF definition, those activities are included if carried out in contravention of national laws or where applicable international obligations. In recent years, uh, the uh, definition has uh, extended to include raising funds, reflecting uh, recent or over the last four or five years, uh, UN Security Council sanctions resolutions on North Korea, which are focused on uh, some of the ways that North Korea raises uh, funds. Okay, so what's the connection with what people will be more familiar with, like, for example, money laundering, sanctions and terrorist financing is there a connection or are they sort of separate sort of typologies when you look when you talk about the typologies of preparation financing you can come up with uh, with a number of them but it's really quite difficult coming up with a specific typology that clearly indicates proliferation financing it that a lot of the typologies could also indicate other sorts of financial crime terrorist financing for example money laundering, for example. So in terms of the typologies, there is some overlap. Uh, in terms of uh, the, uh, the sort of issue itself, but of course, uh, proliferation of weapons of mass destruction can be conducted by states, but it could also be conducted by uh, so-called non-state actors, terrorist groups, for example, uh, who seek to try to use uh, chemical weapons, for example, as was documented uh, in Iraq by ISIL back in 2015-2016 and so um, and these terrorist groups so you know there's some overlap there between proliferation financing and terrorist financing on money laundering uh, so I mean one of the points is money laundering we're often talking about very large sums of money um, uh, obtained by criminal means terrorist financing often talking about rather small sums of money you know perhaps uh, a few tens of thousands or hundred thousands of dollars. Proliferation financing sort of falls into the middle in terms of the sums we're talking about. We're we're often talking about acquisition of industrial goods, uh, uh, shipments of high-grade steel, for example, or carbon fibre. But the techniques used uh, in proliferation financing often involve the same techniques as money launderers use to shift money around the involvement of front companies, for example, or other mechanisms that try to obscure the ultimate beneficial owner of uh, financial transactions uh, and or acquisition of goods and materials. So what about the 
the sort of the main actors who are involved in proliferation financing. Could you tell us a little bit, a little bit about that? Looking at the world at the moment, the two main actors would be uh, North Korea and Iran. And uh, those are quite easy, to, in a sense, to identify both, because both those countries are subject to United Nations Security Council resolutions um, intended to, um, to stop development of uh, weapons of mass destruction, or in the case of I- Iran, it's to control the nuclear program. Iran has always stated that its nuclear program is not intended to for nuclear weapons. Um, and uh, North Korea, of course, has, has boldly stated that its uh, nuclear program is for, for nuclear weapons. So there's a slight, we need to make a slight distinction between those two countries, but basically those are the two countries identified as the main sources of proliferation threats at the moment. Um, There are other countries, however, uh, that uh, one needs to consider. Uh, So, for example, Syria, which has uh, an active uh, government chemical weapons program. uh, And there have been allegations of use of chemical weapons by the government on on its population. Uh, There have also been allegations of use of chemical weapons in Syria by terrorist groups. And there is a continuing debate on that subject. Nevertheless, uh, there are some unilateral sanctions on Syria imposed, for example, by the European Union and by a number of European and other member states. So there's Syria. Uh, then there's, there are two very interesting countries, uh, Pakistan and India, neither of which are subject to any sorts of sanctions, but they have uh, active nuclear weapons programs. Neither country sits within the uh, Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, for example. And uh, many observers would regard uh, India and Pakistan's nuclear programs as being a source of uh, significant uh, potential uh, regional instability. And uh, although neither uh, program is subject to sanctions, um, many countries have export controls in place designed to ensure that no exports of proliferation sensitive materials uh, to the nuclear weapons programs of those two, two countries. There are other countries uh, who one hears about as being potential WMD or nuclear weapon states in future. Uh, such countries include Saudi Arabia, for example, perhaps other states in the Middle East. And then, of course, there's the constant uh, theme that perhaps if the US were to withdraw its nuclear umbrella from some of the Uh, states in Asia, that some of those states might uh, develop their own uh, weapons programs for defensive measures. But I should emphasize very much that there's a lot of speculation in terms of future WMD states, but those that I've mentioned uh, are those that uh, would currently be regarded as constituting uh, specific significant threats. So it sounds like um, the sanctions regime is 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 a method of potentially managing some of these, uh, what we would class as rogue states, activity in pro- proliferation financing. Is that correct? Yeah, I think uh, in terms, uh, so the, the United Nations Security Council, um, when that imposes sanctions, those are widely regarded as being very legitimate um, uh, measures taken by the international community as a whole. It's the United Nations, uh, 193 member states. Yeah. If you sign up as a member state of the United Nations, you sign up to implement Security Council resolutions. 
the uh, sanctions on Syria, for example, those are not United Nations sanctions. And uh, uh, some countries implement those, other countries do not implement those. So um, they do not have the, the sort of universal impact uh, yes. to uh, Security Council sanctions. When you were talking about uh, proliferation financing, something occurred to me, which I've heard a lot, is a term called dual-use goods. Could you explain how that fits into the proliferation financing sort of agenda and what that means? Uh, no, it's a very good question. So dual-use goods are goods um, that have both uh, perfectly legitimate industrial uses, uh, but also uh, are necessary for construction of uh, weapons of mass destruction programs. There are a number of so-called multilateral export control regimes which publish lists of such goods uh, uh, which get updated annually. So, for example, there's the Nuclear Suppliers Group uh, that publishes lists of uh, nuclear program-related uh, dual-use goods. The Australia Group uh, does the same for biological and, wep uh, and chemical weapons-related uh, goods. Um, the MT Missile Technology Control Regime publishes lists for um, missiles. United Nations sanctions resolutions on uh, North Korea include references to, to these sorts of lists. And many countries, when they uh, draw up their own export control legislation, include these lists because they're a very useful way to uh, ensure that uh, manufacturers, um, if they are trying to export such dual-use goods, um, first of all, can identify them, and, and then uh, the authorities can say you you may you need licenses to export these. In other words, checks need to be carried out that that uh, a shipment, for example, of high-grade steel or high-grade carbon fiber, which could be used in the construction of missiles, for example, is is in fact going to uh, a, a perfectly legitimate pro civil industrial purpose and not to uh, uh, not to a WMD program. And uh, so when uh, talking about proliferation finance, uh, we're talking often about the financing of these sorts of dual use goods. Uh, it's important that uh, when you're building a nuclear weapons program, for example, you may need to import not just dual use goods, but other standard industrial goods. Um, uh, and, and so if you're if you're an authority and you're trying to control completely exports of goods and materials and the financing uh, to WMD programs, you need certainly to have these controls on dual use goods, but you need to have some other sort of language in your legislation to ensure that end use controls, for example, to ensure that some of these other items are not also going to um, uh, nefarious purposes. A quick pause, if I may, to briefly talking about Themis. Themis helps clients and members identify and manage their specific financial crime risks through a combination of innovation, insight and intelligence. Our cutting-edge platform helps organisations understand these strategic threats through an ESG and socio-economic lens and protects their customers, staff, suppliers and shareholders from criminal attacks or association. Visit our website at www.crime.financial to find out more. So I suppose it becomes quite challenging in terms of detecting proliferation financing for organisations and regions. What do you think the challenges are? And are there any examples of good practice that we could be made aware of? No, it's a very good point. It is challenging. 
And when you talk to financial institutions about proliferation financing, uh, they will immediately say, well, you know, how can we detect proliferation financing? We're not often talking about a very large uh, number of transactions. Uh, the sums involved aren't very distinctive. The, the messaging systems, SWIFT messages, for example, do not contain the, the necessary information in, in many cases. Uh, it's it is it is a challenge, um, uh, and uh, and it looks like uh, proliferation financing looks like the financing of international trade, legitimate international trade. The uh, transactions either take place through uh, open account mechanisms, uh, or or in some cases, proliferation uh, sort of trade finance mechanisms could be used where banks get involved, and if the banks get involved, there's a certain amount of documentation they can check. But then banks say, well, you know, how do we, how, you know, we, we don't have uh, specialists on particular uh, types of equipment. How, how, you know, are we expected to go to the docks and inspect ourselves in person? Obviously, we can't do that. So, so it is challenging. So, but I think uh, there are ways forward here. And, you know, trade, uh, terrorist financing, for example, you know, is, is similarly challenging. We're not talking about huge numbers of transactions. There may be very in terms of uh, terrorist financing, really quite localized. The problem with proliferation financing is that the global financial system is used and some of these proliferation financing networks you know, may cover many jurisdictions. Uh, perhaps not so much the case with terrorist financing, but nevertheless, uh, when terrorist financing became a big issue after 9-11, a uh, large amount of uh, new legislation was imposed uh, and uh, systems put in place uh, by the private sector to conduct uh, monitoring of uh, terrorist finance typologies. And I personally think that more could be done uh, by the private sector in incorporating some of the known typologies of proliferation financing into their monitoring systems that they've set up for terrorist financing and, and for money laundering. So that is one area where I think more could be done, but that, but of course, uh, for understandable reasons, the private, it's expensive. Private sector isn't going to do that unless regulators uh, uh, require them to do that. On that point, Jonathan, on the typologies, you know, for the regulated sector, the private sector, you know, they have a, a quite a large suite of standards. For example, they have the uh, FATF standards for AML and CTF and sort of relevant legislation. Is there any equivalence for proliferation financing that they could refer to? The Financial Action Task Force, of course, uh, which um, is often the, the source of regulatory um, uh, standards, uh, does include in its current uh, recommendations, 40 recommendations, um, uh, standards related to proliferation finance. Uh, so recommendation seven, uh, which requires uh, FATF countries to implement uh, United Nations Security Council designations and asset freezes related to um, the sanctions on North Korea and, and uh, sanctions on Iran. So there is that. Uh, there is a, a recommend FATF recommendation two, uh, which is uh, which is a very important recommendation. It's a requirement for states. Uh, to have proper interdepartmental coordination and communication systems uh, in place. And this is important because uh, proliferation finance 
potentially touches on uh, a large number of areas of different uh, departmental responsibilities. So it's not just the Ministry of Finance or the Financial Intelligence Unit, but it could be customs, for example, or licensing authorities, or the agencies may, intelligence agencies may have uh, information. So having these proper coordinated authority uh, system uh, uh, in place is, uh, is very important. And, but most importantly, I think, uh, is that uh, recently or last year, the Financial Action Task Force incorporated into uh, recommendation one, uh, a requirement for states and uh, their private sector to conduct uh, proliferation financing risk assessments. The uh, definition of risk in this case is rather narrow. It's the risk of circumvention or non-implementation or evasion of targeted financial sanctions. And we were talking about the definition of proliferation financing at the start. And the proliferation financing goes much wider than simply targeted financial sanctions. Nevertheless, the fact that the Financial Action Task Force has implemented this resolution is going to require countries to conduct these risk assessments. Uh, it's going to require countries to require their financial institutions to conduct these risk assessments. And, uh, and although it's, uh, it's, it relates to a limited definition of proliferation financing, it's going to get the concept of proliferation financing, in my opinion, into the FATF bloodstream uh, in a very significant way. This, this recommendation will become uh, will need to be implemented during the next round of uh, FATF evaluations. And I believe that starts in a, a year or a couple of years. So it's not immediate, but I think it means we're going to see some big developments on proliferation financing uh, uh, over the next uh, five to 10 year period. So would that indicate that it may actually then uh, go into European directives and potentially UK legislation as well? Yes, it will. So one of the very important aspects of being a member of the Financial Action Task Force is that each country is evaluated periodically on its implementation of the of the standards. Mm. And these evaluations are, are hugely important. If you're a country that comes out badly from a FATF evaluation, uh, it looks as though your financial system is, is perhaps you know, not properly regulated, not properly controlled, could be exploited by by uh, by criminals, for example, no country wants that because it's bad for business. So countries do put a lot of effort into uh, ensuring that they come out well from uh, these FATF evaluations. And to come out well, uh, they will need to show that they have uh, appropriate legislation in place to meet the standards and that it's being enforced and uh, and evaluated. What about the the role of cryptocurrency and proliferation financing. Uh, no, it's that. So this is a very interesting area, I think, because clearly there are uh, cryptocurrencies being more and more widely used, both as a way of generating wealth, uh, uh, but also for for trading value. And uh, I think it's very interesting that uh, uh, some of the reports that have been published over the last couple of years by a panel of experts that supports. Uh, UN Security Council sanctions on North Korea uh, has included reference to uh, North Korea's uh, use of cryptocurrencies. Uh, use of cryptocurrencies uh, uh, to uh, to raise funds. Uh, at the moment, I'm not aware that there is there are references 
to significant use by North Korea uh, of cryptocurrencies to say pay for proliferation related goods and materials that may be happening. We just don't know about it. Um, and I think uh, when you look at trade finance at the moment, trade finance takes place uh, using fiat currencies. But when trade finance uh, starts um, uh, taking place with cryptocurrencies, then I think we're going to see um, uh, more uh, more use of uh, cryptocurrencies to, to finance proliferation as well. But that's that's something perhaps uh, for the uh, near to middle term uh, future. Not, it, I'm not sure it's actually happening at, at present. And uh, if we focus in on the UK, then uh, there's a recent uh, UK national risk assessment on proliferation financing. What, what were your main takeaways from that? A good document, uh, I have to say. Um, uh, the UK is, I think, the fifth or sixth or seventh country to have published uh, a, a proliferation financing national risk assessment in the last uh, couple, two or three years. And uh, when you read prefer- the, these risk assessments, um, uh, they tend to be not, I wouldn't say uniform, but the sources of the threats are, are often you know, quite similar. And this goes back to the fact we're dealing with the global financial system. It's the vulnerabilities, I think, which are very interesting and they are specific to, to different countries. And so the vulnerabilities identified in the UK uh, national risk assessment include the fact that it's a, the UK is a global financial centre, uh, that it's a centre for the insurance and maritime sector, it's a country in which it's relatively easy to establish businesses, front companies, for example. Uh, it's also a country with uh, uh, a large number of so-called designated non-financial businesses and professions. And those are, those are sectors where uh, often compliance standards aren't as developed as in the, as in the financial sector. Um, there's a reference in the uh, proliferation finance and risk assessment to Crown dependencies and overseas territories. I, I personally am not sure that those necessarily represent uh, uh, a source of risk. Uh, some of these uh, crown dependencies have done a lot of work of themselves over the last few years on proliferation financing. Jersey, Guernsey, Isle of Man, for example. Cayman Islands as an overseas territory has produced a very good proliferation financing risk assessment last year. Uh, but the, the UK assessment refers as well to the fact that it's a, a manufacturing centre for dual-use goods. It's also a, a global education and research hub, and this is an important point as well. Um, uh, and uh, then the final point mentioned is that uh, you know, the general knowledge of uh, proliferation financing in the private sector is quite low. So, uh, you know, this comes back to uh, the fact that uh, more work needs to be done, more outreach to the private sector to, to, to raise awareness. So uh, uh, those are the takeaway. I think there's a very interesting list of vulnerabilities there, uh, many of which are not specific to the UK. But the fact that they're so clearly listed is a, is, is a very good aspect of this, um, this risk assessment. Drawing this uh, interview to a close, you know, from your expertise and experience, what would be your one piece of advice or guidance uh, to you know, our, our listeners in terms of addressing proliferation financing and what they can do? I would s- suggest that uh, your listeners need to, um, uh, first of all, be aware of the threat. Uh, they, and in that 
respect, I think it would be worth them reading the UK's uh, uh, proliferation financing risk assessment. Um, uh, and then I think they need to think about their own position in terms of uh, uh, areas of vulnerability. Uh, and then they need to think about how to address that. And there are various sources of expertise. Of course, uh, the government itself, UK Treasury, uh, has uh, got people who can uh, provide advice. Uh, there are also uh, some UK uh, research and academic institutions that have published a lot of material on this. Uh, so King's College in London, for example, uh, has uh, done a, a fair amount of work on typologies. The Royal United Services Institute in London has also published uh, guidance on conducting risk assessments. Um, so I think awareness, um, thinking about vulnerabilities and then reaching out uh, to organizations and centers of information is uh, is a very good way to start off addressing this issue. Jonathan, it's been a really enlightening discussion that we've had with you today. I've certainly been uh, educated in this area and I'm sort of keen to find out more. And uh, I'm looking forward to reading those uh, recommendations that you've provided. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. And uh, good luck to everybody in conducting proliferation financing risk assessment. Thank you for listening to the latest Themis podcast. We hope you found it interesting and informative. If you would like to find out more about Themis, get in touch with us via our website, www.crime.financial. You can also subscribe for future news and interviews.